Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 at this time. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We have almost completed our study of the book of 1 Corinthians. Next week being the last message uh, on this uh, great epistle. We've been looking recently at some very inspirational and uh, comforting teachings concerning the resurrection. And now Paul turns in the last chapter away from those types of things to much more practical issues. And he starts with his issue of, of money, which uh, there's very few things in life more practical than, than money. And so uh, the scriptures are very practical. God's teaching is, uh, is very practical in every aspect of life and certainly at the area of money. Chuck Swindoll, quoting somebody else, I believe, uh, wrote this uh, in one of his books a few years ago. He said uh, concerning the uh, foolishness of trusting in riches, uh, he said, money can buy medicine but not health. Money can buy ho a house but not a home. Money can buy companionship but not friends. Money can buy entertainment but not happiness. Money can buy food but not an appetite. Money can buy a bed but not sleep. Money can buy a crucifix but not a savior. Money can buy the good life but not the eternal life. And uh, that's well said, I believe. As Paul begins to talk about this practical issue of money, we know this is one of the things all of us deal with. Uh, I don't care how spiritual or godly you are, you have to deal with money. I don't care how godly and Christ-centered a church or ministry is, we have to deal with money. It's just part of the way the Lord has created things to be. So Paul is turning his attention to that. Actually, as he begins verse 1, he says, Now concerning, this is the fifth of six times that he uses that phrase starting with chapter 7 verse 1. And each of these uh, tell us that the church at Corinth had written Paul some questions and he didn't get around to answering them to chapter 7. But then he answers all six of these questions at the end of the book. Chapter 7 verse 1, chapter 7 verse 25, chapter 8 verse 1, chapter 12 verse 1, chapter 16 verse 1, and then next week chapter 16 verse 12. And so he is answering questions that he apparently had asked them and one of those questions had to do with giving and with money, and Paul wants to, to deal with that here. Uh, he teaches us then much about giving, about money. You know, uh, many people ignore the teachings of Scripture. They seem to think that there's nothing in the Bible that talks to us about this very practical issue of finances. And yet the Scriptures are full of teaching on instruction and principles concerning finances. And uh, I think a lot of people say, well, since there's not much in Scripture, then I'll just do what's natural. I'll just do what's natural. You know what? If you do what is natural on anything in life, you'll probably do the wrong thing because we're naturally bent towards sin. And, uh, and, we, and the Scriptures point us in the right direction and teach us the right things. And so Paul is going to say, don't do what's natural. Do what God says to do when it comes to money. And we're going to see some of that today. The backdrop of this account that we're looking at today is not the general offerings that we would take at a church and so forth. Paul is traveling around Galatia and Corinth and, and the Greek cities and so forth. And as he ministers the gospel, as he disciples people, he is also collecting funds to take back to Jerusalem. Uh, for whatever reasons, the Christians at Jerusalem were in dire straits financially. Uh, we don't know exactly why. Was it persecution? Uh, was it mismanagement of their funds early on when they were so enthusiastic in the first couple chapters of Acts and were just giving away everything and that got them in, in, took them in some kind of financial hole? 
Uh, was it uh, something else? We don't know. But we know Paul was going around gathering funds that he was going to take back to Jerusalem for the needy Christians there. Note, he isn't, isn't taking funds back to a, a general poverty program in Jerusalem for everybody. It's for the Christians in particular. So he's headed, taking money back to the churches there at, Cor at, at, at Jerusalem, and he's collecting them from these churches. In Corinth, he's saying, I'm going to give you the opportunity to be one of those churches to give towards this need of the believers in, in Jerusalem, your brothers and sisters that are there. And so that's the backdrop. But as he talks about that, he lays out for us a number of insights about money and about giving. And I'm going to look uh, with you today at three themes, uh, two of them found here and, and one other in a text I read a moment ago about that deals with money. And we're going to start with the first theme of, of the Christian and giving. Uh, the Christian and giving. And there's going to be four principles in the first two verses concerning giving that I think are very applicable to us today as it was then. Now, their circumstances were somewhat different, as I've already explained, but the principles are applicable to the modern church. And the first principle is this, giving is an act of worship. In verse 1, he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also, on the first day of every week, each one is to, of you is to put aside, and to save as he may prosper, so that no collection be made when I come. You're not going to find the word worship in this text, but I think the implications are there. So let me look at the, at least the implications with you. The church was to come together as a body uh, on the first day of the week when the church gathered uh, early in the New Testament. And they came together to worship, to be taught the Word of God, to be taught the apostles' teachings, to pray, to fellowship, and also to bring their funds together uh, for the work of the Lord in various ways. And so as the church gathered to worship, one of the ways they worshiped, and I believe this to be very true, one of the ways they worshiped is in their giving. And that's why we, we have opportunities to give here at the church. Now, you, uh, before the pandemic, we passed offering plates. We stopped doing that during the pandemic for medical reasons, but we didn't know what's going on. And we started uh, having a box. It's uh, actually an ammunition box uh, that uh, one of our guys had at home. Uh, one of our hunters or whatever, and he brought it in. We drilled a hole in the top or whatever, stuck it out there, and it's been the best giving we've ever had. So, so we're not planning to go back to offering place uh, I don't, anytime soon. And we're not, somebody said, why don't we buy a, a, a really a nice offering box that says offering? And I said, how much better can you do than a dynamite box? I mean, so far so good, but uh, the offering opportunity is still there. So if, you are, if you've never seen our box back there and didn't know how we're collecting funds, that's what we're doing now. And you can put your funds in there and we'll take care of it. I'll talk about that later. But nevertheless, uh, church comes together to worship God in many ways. And one of those ways is in our giving. Uh, now here's a question. Why does God want us to give, given the fact that he has everything already? God does not need your money. He doesn't. He owns everything. So why does he want you and I to give? Because giving is not only an act of worship, it's also a, one of the ways God raises his children. You see, we're selfish by nature. We're born selfish. It's all about me. It's about my stuff, and about my life, and about my money, and about my 401k, and about my stuff. Uh, by nature, we're selfish. And giving is an act of unselfishness 
that gives away a little bit of our selfishness. And that's all, it's modeled, as he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, the last verse, verse 28, I believe, it, where it's based on the indescribable gift of Jesus Christ himself, who gave of himself the, the total package his whole life for us totally unselfishly. And therefore, giving is an act of worship and it's a means of raising us to be more like Christ as we follow that example in our giving. So what could be more, what could be more self-centered than our money? Um, my pastor, as I grew up, used to say the last thing to get converted was people's wallets. Uh, I don't know if he was right about that, but he, he preached on money a lot. So that might have been his thing. You know, a lot of people, they'll do all sorts of things for the Lord, but they don't give to the Lord. And that was his, his point. I, I don't know if he did a scientific study on that, but that's what he used to say. So we want to worship God, and we give to his work, because God is, is one of the means God uses to raise children who, who worship him in every way, including the tangible way of giving. Here's the second principle, verse 2, giving should be systematic. Verse 2 says, on the first day of every week, Okay, they are to give. Notice the systemized system here of giving. A practical principle that when we give a little bit at a time, systematically, we're able to do well in our giving. And if we don't, if we just kind of say, oh, well, I'll just give a big lump sum at the end of the year, that usually doesn't work out too well. For example, let's say you decide uh, that uh, you want to give $500 a month to the Lord's work. And you, so you give $500 a month to the Lord's work, month after month, however you want to give. But what if you say, well, I think I won't do that. I think I'll wait to the end of the year, December 31st, and write a $6,000 check. Well, first of all, it's going to be more painful. And secondly, the money will often not be there. It's kind of like a car payment. I, I've done a lot of financial counseling over the years, as many of you know. And I've always been amazed how many people can go out and buy a car on time pay five, six hundred dollars or eight hundred dollars, a thousand dollars a month paying off that car and at the end of the payment when the car is paid off that money disappears. Where did that five hundred dollars, six hundred dollars a month go to? Why couldn't they save it, which I recommend them they do? Develop a fund, put it in the bank, five hundred dollars a month just like you were paying your car payment, do it every month till you're ready for a new car, then the money's there. But most people will never do that. Uh, but the, 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 system, the, the idea of systematically paying, systematically giving, and uh, systematically saving is a very wise move. And I think he's being very practical here as he tells us that we are to give every week, he says, or every time we, when we come together. Now, I would say this about that. I don't think he's being legalistic that every time you come to church you have to give. Uh, some people get paid every other week or once a month or, or whatever. I don't think there's a system there. But on a regular basis... Determine what you want to give, and on a regular basis, uh, bring that money to, to the Lord's people, to the, to the Church of Christ, and contribute in that way. Now, here's the third principle. Giving is to be done by every believer. On the first day of every week, each one is to put aside and save. Now, that doesn't leave any loopholes, folks. Uh, that's for each believer. That means the rich, the, the middle class, the poor are to give. And keep in mind that most of these people in this church here were slaves. They didn't have deep pockets, uh, and they were to give anyway of what they, they could. In a moment, we'll talk about how much, but he simply says here, look, set aside and save this money and put it away, and, then, uh, and each one of you are then to give as the Lord gives you opportunity to give. 
as he says this, each one of you to put aside and save. There's been some different of opinions among good Bible teachers about what that means. Uh, Ryrie seems to think, Charles Ryrie thinks that we should each have a, 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 some kind of a collection at home, some kind of a, a place where we keep money, and we, every week we put aside money in that pot, and then uh, uh, periodically as needs arise or whatever, we, we draw money out of that pot and we give to the Lord's work. Uh, I don't agree with that for two reasons, one scriptural, one practical. On a scriptural basis, notice the passage here that the, he says, he goes on to say, so that there be no collections made when I come. If people were setting aside money at home, bringing it in when Paul showed up, that would be a collection when he came. And he says, I don't want collections when I come. I want this all set aside before I come, maybe because he didn't want anybody to think he was there to, to take away their money or something along that line. So I don't think he, he's saying that. He, he's saying here, set it aside on a systematic, regular base at the church. He's talking about the church coming together on the first day of the week. And they come together as part of their worship, as part of the body of Christ. They bring their funds together and collect it at that time. And then there's a practical reason as well. Uh, we are to give as a body, not simply uh, on our own. So I'll just be kind of open with you today a little bit about some of this for myself. Uh, on our giving, uh, we give, we determine the amount that we're going to give for the year monthly, what we're going to give monthly, uh, the, on the first day of January usually, first part of the year. We determine how much we're going to give. And we give, that, we give that amount throughout the year. Also, keeping in mind, once in a while there's something special comes up, a love offering or whatever, somebody in need, and we can dig out, of, out from our funds at home. Uh, to meet those needs. So it's not, it's not just one thing here, but systematically we set that aside and I would encourage you to do the, much the same thing. And so he says here, give systematically and each one should be giving, but now that brings us to the all important question, how much should you give? And that's where our fourth principle comes in, the, in here. Giving is to be proportionate. It's to be proportionate. As he may prosper, he says, in verse 16. How much are you to give to the Lord's work? Well, do we tithe? I'm going to, get to, I'm going to talk to you in just a moment about tithing, but, but the New Testament never commands a tithe, never even instructs us concerning tithing at all. New, tithing is not a New Testament means of giving. I'll talk about that in a moment. But what he, what he does say to do is this, literally the text could be translated, whatever has gone well with you. We're to give according to whatever has gone well with you as you prosper. In other words, it should be proportionate to your income. How the Lord has prospered you financially, it should be proportionate to that. Now some of you, uh, to, for example, for some of you tithing would be very difficult, 10%. Be very difficult because of your financial situation. Uh, many, many years ago, we had a young couple come to our church for a few years and they, uh, they were in financial bad place, in straits. They, they were hurrying, so they came to me to talk about it. We, looked, we did their budget, we looked at the income outgo, found that they were bringing in $700 a month less than what they were spending. And they didn't know it. That was a bad thing. So they were, they were going in debt, deep debt, and didn't know what, what was happening there. So as we sat down and looked at that, one of, one of the interesting things, they've been listening to a Christian ministry on radio, very popular ministry, and, and uh, reading the books, it said every Christian must tithe, no matter what, 10%. Well, I disagreed with that, still do. And here's why. 
If you are not paying your rent, if you're not paying your utilities, if you're not paying your credit card bills, if you're not paying money you owe other people, you're not giving anything to the Lord. You're using somebody else's money. Does that make sense? So in other words, if, uh, if your landlord is not getting $500 a month rent, but you're giving that much, much to the church, you didn't give your money, you gave his money. And he's not all, all necessarily excited about that, right? So they were robbing somebody else to give to the church. Now, that's shameful, in my opinion. Don't shame the Lord by not paying your bills. So what I did with them and have with others is, you get your financial house in order. You, you, get, you get your income out going order, you set up a budget, you, be, you begin to work off these debts, and when you're able, you start giving to the Lord as you're able. And the Lord knows your heart, and the Lord, Lord knows what you want to give. Make it your goal, it might be a long-term goal in their case, but make it your goal to be able to give substantially to the Lord's work, but right now, you've got to get your house in order so you're not shaming the Lord in the way you're doing things financially. So that's what I would recommend as we think about things along that line. It's a shame. We're not to wrong the Lord. We're not to shame the Lord in our giving. So go talk to your creditors if you're there. Uh, set up a plan. Work it out. Get some financial help, uh, financial counseling, and get yourself together on that. But now let's go back to how much he's talking about here. For some, uh, giving a tithe, 10%, would be, like I said, very, very difficult right now. For others, giving a 10% is actually, I would say, sinful. Because you're not, you are so well off, God has blessed you so much, and you're giving so little that you're shortchanging God, and you're short, shortchanging what He is wanting to do in your life as a Christian. Because you're not being right before Him. You should be giving proportionally as the Lord gives you. Again, going back to my own life, uh, my first job... I got paid, uh, first real job at 15, uh, I got paid a dollar an hour, you know, and so my grandkids ask me sometimes, uh, Grandpa, what do you, what do you, what would you get paid when you were a kid? What was the minimum wage? And I said, well, a dollar, and of course, they don't understand that, of course, that was back in the, back in the 1800s, so <laughs> it, it stretched out a little better, but, but a dollar, but, uh, you know, they don't understand the perspective of time. One of them asked me the other day, I was grilling hamburgers. And one of them said, uh, Papa, did, uh, did they have grills when you were young? <laughs> and I said, no, fire hadn't been invented yet. Yeah, so, uh, and, and then he backed up and said, no, uh, I meant gas grills. Oh, okay, that's, that's a little better, buddy. But uh, I, I, was, I just rolled my eyes for a while. And, oh, come on, I'm not that old. Come on now. But, uh, anyhow, uh, think, perspectives change, but I, I would say, I grew up in a church that's preached on tithing every week, uh, and therefore I just did it as automatically. So on my dollar an hour, I, I gave 10 cents to the church. And I did that for, a, for years, that kind of thing. I eventually made more than a dollar. It took a while. But uh, it, since all my life, uh, I've never backed up on that percentage-wise. No matter what, it's always been 10% and far above that as time as the Lord blessed me. But never did I back up on that under any circumstance wasn't a bad plan. I don't think it's God's plan, tithing, but nevertheless, it's a good starting point to be thinking about. Let me, uh, let me say a word about tithing, though, because some of you have been raised with tithing, or you think it's a New Testament principle. Let, let me go back just briefly. I'm not going to take you to the scriptures, per se. I'll give you the passages. But the tithing was never God's way 
of getting offerings from his people ever, ever. In the Old Testament, tithing was taxation. All right? The, there was three tithes that the Jewish people were to give to, to the work of God in Israel. Every one of them were taxation by what we understand taxation today. 10% a year was to go to take care of the Levites and the priests. That was a priestly group of people that, that couldn't have the, they were set aside. They didn't have the, the financial wherewithal to, to make a living uh, as, as the others did. And so they were taken care of by Israel. And that 10% a year is what paid their salaries and took care of them. 10% a year was also set aside for the annual feasts of Israel. So they had three feasts every year that at most all men were supposed to go to in Jerusalem. And somebody had to pay for all that. That came out of the tithing, of one of the, the, another 10%. That was a taxation. And then every third year, they paid another 10% that year for the poor people. It was a welfare program or part of it, take care of people that could not take care of themselves. You put it together, and you find that the taxation or tithing system of the Old Testament was not 10%, it was 23%. So if you want to be a biblical tither, 23%, folks. And you can do that. I'm not against that. But that is what they did. But that was taxation. So on top of that, they were to give free will offerings. And they did for various means and various reasons that they had that gave free will offerings all the time. So we come to the New Testament. That has not changed. We pay our taxes and we give our offerings. We pay our taxes. How many of you, for a show of hand, just enjoy paying your taxes? All right, want two people over here, we'll talk to you after the service. Uh, in a way, if you look at it, as much as we complain and bellyache about this, that, and the other, we get a lot for our money. Did you drive on roads today that actually were paved for the most part? Do we have a, do we have a, a police system that takes care of us for the most part? Do we have a military, military system? Do we have all sorts of, of care for the poor? Do we have, now, every one of those are flawed. So you can say after church, you can knock me down and say, I want to argue with you. Every one of those are flawed, but boy, are we blessed. Are we blessed for what we get for our money? Okay, now I don't want to overpay, and I fight like crazy not to, but at the same time, I want to pay my fair share because that's what runs this country. Okay, so that's what the Jews did. But then they gave offerings on top of that, and that's what the New Testament believer is to do as well. So I'm not quite done with tithing. I want to, I want to go to the New Testament for a moment. Uh, tithing is mentioned only eight times in the New Testament. It's mentioned mostly in the Gospels, five of those times. One time Jesus was talking about, remember the, the Pharisee and the, and the uh, tax collector? And the Pharisee was sitting around, you know, claiming, thank you, Lord, I'm not like other men. You know, I do this, that, and the other, and I tithe. That was one of the comments. And he was the one that went down condemned. And the tax collector, all he could do was beat on his breast and say, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And that man went down justified. So that, uh, that's, that shows a whole difference there. Tithing was not a positive thing there in that sense. The other times has, in the Gospels have to do when the Lord was condemning the Pharisees because they were so legalistic that they tithed on everything but didn't do justice and, and didn't honor God with their lives. They didn't love the Lord. And so it wasn't a positive thing there. The other three mentions are Hebrews. Three different times in the book of Hebrews, it's mentioned as 
illustrations of what the Old Testament people did, especially Abraham and Jacob before the law. And so, having said that, here's the bottom line. There is no command, no hint anywhere in the New Testament that Christians are to tithe. But wasn't tithing before the law, someone says, so shouldn't it be incumbent on us today? Yes, if the Lord didn't give us a different plan. And here it is, the different plan. He says here, and also in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which is much fuller on this subject, by the way, study that out later, he, he says something different. Paul could have said right here, bring all your tithes and offerings to the church. He did not, because it, that is not the system the Lord has for us. Our giving is to be proportionate to how he has blessed us. And so let me, let me leave that particular, this particular theme by saying this. If the Lord has blessed you financially, then you are to be giving and proportionate to the way he has blessed you. If at this point in time you have no funds in which to give, make, make sure your heart is right before the Lord. Make sure you, when the opportunity comes and as you grow in that area that you begin to give, but, uh, but the Lord knows your heart. He understands your heart. But if you have the means and you don't give, you're shortchanging the work of God in your life. I don't care what you own. I don't care what you have. You're shortchanging the work of God in your life. And if you're doing that, then you're not honoring and glorifying Him. You're not worshiping Him. So money is very practical, and it really touches on every aspect of our life. The second theme that we'll look at is, is concerns the church, really. How should funds be handled? In the church. Verses 3 and 4, again, very practical. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it's fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. And so uh, the second thing is how should funds be handled with integrity? With integrity. Notice, notice as these funds are collected, Paul is very careful. I'm going to take these funds to Jerusalem for these poor Christians. All right? And you can send with me anybody you want to, to safeguard the integrity of these funds. That nobody is pilfering from the box, nobody's taking advantage. Or any, and I'll go with you, I'll go with them if you want me to. And so the clarity here of just being real careful with the funds the Lord gives his church and his people so that there's no scandals and whatsoever. Complete transparency. Uh, every safeguard that you can get. Many, many scandals throughout church history could have been avoided by just watching these two verses and how this principle is laid out. Even in our own Springfield community, there have been reports over the years of, of churches where individuals have taken large sums of money because there was no safeguards and no transparency. And so we have to be very careful of that. So in our church here, uh, of course, is a different background. But in our church here, we try every, trans, any, every safeguard we can to make sure the funds are taken care of properly. So we're very transparent here. Uh, and I'd say more than, more than most, we are, everything that we do is out in the open that can be out in the open. You, if you look at our, our annual reports and so forth, you know our salaries. Uh, you, who does that? Do I know your salary? No. You know my salary? Yes. All right. We, you know our salaries. You know what we give to missionaries. Uh, you, know, uh, you know our budget. You know where the money's going. You know this, that. It's all out there. If you have any questions, any questions, ask Edwin. Don't, don't, don't ask me. Uh, uh, 
We've been picking on Edwin this week, so. Now, if you have any questions, ask me or, or one of our leaders. We are totally transparent as far as possible we can be. On top of that, when we collect our dynamite box full of money, or whatever we get, uh, that is collected, and, and two people at all times guard that money and uh, count that money so that there is no, no question that, that that money is put in the right spot where it belongs. We're extremely careful with that. Matter of fact, we have a, a team of several people that take care of that kind of stuff. We want to be transparent. We want to have every safeguard that we want nothing ever to be said that, that somehow we did not do what was right with God's money. And that's that coming from this principle. We're not doing anything special. We're just doing what God would have us do and be very, very careful with what he would have us do. Now, there's a third principle, our theme that I want to look at. I want you to go to, back to 1 Timothy chapter 6 that I read a moment ago. And let's look at money in general, the Christian and money. And 1 Timothy just gives wonderful details and instruction concerning money. So let's look at some principles here as well. Starting with verse 6. Here, here's the first principle. Wealth has nothing to do with contentment. Wealth has nothing to do with contentment. In verse 6 he says, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Numerous surveys and uh, notices put in papers and whatever have asked the question to people uh, who is the happiest people on earth uh, how would you answer that question who is the happiest people on earth what makes people happy and uh, you might answer it in various ways but I don't think there's ever been a better answer anywhere than right here Paul says that if you want to be happy and content he says, godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. The happiest people on earth, bar none, are those who are godly. Those who honor Christ with their life and their funds. Those who honor Christ with, with everything. Those who are growing in godliness. There's nobody happier than them. And when accompanied by contentment, he says here, that is great gain. You want great gain in this life? Now, don't play the stock market necessarily. You may or may not gain. Uh, but, but you live godly, and you will find true contentment because godliness shapes the way you think. Godliness shapes your priorities, and you will begin to think like Christ more and more. And as you do that, you're going to find true contentment in these things. So that one of the strongest lies that Satan has been able to propagate upon the human race is that wealth brings contentment. Everybody who's in this room over 25 years old knows that's a lie. You know, the younger people are still figuring it out, maybe. But eventually you realize, no matter what I've got, I'm not content. I'm not, I'm not happy with that. I'm, I need more. I need something else. I need a bigger house, more cars, whatever. I need something, and I'm not content. Godliness will bring contentment. And so he speaks of that here. Money is not the source, God is. Our money can vanish and be taken away. Right? Have you looked at the stock market? Okay. God never leaves us, nor forsakes us, and he's always there with us and for us. 
It doesn't get better than that, folks. I don't care if you're making 5000 a year or 500000 a year. Well, might, there, you're going to have differences in the way you live. And money can give us options and opportunities. But money wants to rule. Money wants to be our God. It's one of the greatest lies Satan has ever come up with, and almost everybody falls for it, including many, many Christians. And so he says here the first principle, wealth never brought anybody contentment. Godliness does. Secondly, the desire for wealth can ruin you. The desire for wealth can ruin you. Look at verse 9. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destructive destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced, them, pierced themselves with many griefs. It doesn't say here whether these people who want to get rich are poor or middle class or wealthy. It doesn't say. And by the way, by every standard of human history and every standard throughout, throughout most of the world today, most everybody in this room could be categorized as rich. There's a few of you, maybe not, but most of us were wealthy beyond the dreams of anybody, kings, beyond the, the, the dreams of kings in the past. That's how much we have in this country. And so as we think about that, whether you're poor or middle class or rich, the, the issue is not that. The issue, and this, here it is, do not make becoming wealthy the goal of your life, or even a major goal of your life. Do not do that. And by wealthy, I mean accumulating more stuff, having more things, de developing a bigger account, doing all these things that come with money. Do not make that your goal because it says it will ruin you. Oh, I'm not ruined. I've been living like this for a long time. I'm doing fine. You are wrong because your heart's wrong. And if your heart's wrong, you're ruined. And you don't even know it. How bad is that? You don't even know you're ruined, but you are if you're not doing what God tells you to do in these principles. You're headed for major trouble. When riches and materialism becomes the driving force of our lives, there are numerous temptations that arise with it. We began to figure out ways that we can short-circuit things ethically. Maybe we don't have to pay that bill. Maybe we can, maybe we can take advantage of this person over here. Maybe we can do this, that, or the other. And... Uh, save more money for ourselves, buy bigger stuff, more stuff. Or we become stingy, you know, stingy with our kids or stingy with people around us who have needs uh, and look down on them or stingy with God and his work. Uh, that's a ruin, you see. And that's because we're chasing after the wrong dream. The wrong God is in charge of your life and that will ruin you every time. And we don't even know it. So uh, we're being deluded by these things. Still some choose to live this way, even uh, as I preach this message. Some of you might say, well, yeah, I get that, but you know what, Gary? I've got to send kids to college, right? And I've got to take them on this big vacation that's going to cost $10,000 before they grow up because they're going to need that trip. Let me tell you something. Your kids will be far better off if you live for God with your money than you take them on the best trip the world's ever seen or send them to Harvard or anyplace else. You show them by your life and your example, godliness with your money as one of the best things you can ever do for them. I'm not making this up, by the way. Take a look at the Bible I'm reading. It's telling us these things. Number three, do not trust in money. Verse 17, okay. 
Instruct those who are rich. I want to stop there. He does not condemn people who have money. He doesn't say it's wrong to be rich. He doesn't tell them to give it all away and take a vow of poverty. That's another trick of the devil from ancient times. He doesn't say to do that. But he does say, in verse, going on to uh, in, in verse 17, he says this, Instruct them who are rich in the present world not to be conceited, or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who is richly supplies us with all the things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. He doesn't, he doesn't tell the rich people to give it all away, but he gives them four instructions, and this will be applicable to most of us here. Number one, don't fix your hope on riches. For they're uncertain. They're uncertain. Don't fix your hope on riches. So if, unless you've been living in a cave somewhere, uh, you probably know that we're financially our country's not doing so great. Inflation is up. Taxes are up. Uh, uh, stock market's down, right? And uh, you're, you're maybe wringing your hands saying, my 401k has lost 20, 25% of my money and uh, whatever else. And this is a hard time for me right now. Let me, let me change that scenario just a little bit. I think when the stock market and these kinds of things tank, there's two great things come out of it. Now you're saying, Gary, you're nuts. Okay, maybe. Okay, let me ch- suggest two things. This is a test. This is a test. Ups and downs are happening. They're always going to happen. Every time we have one of these things where things tank, that's a test. Where's your heart? If you can't sleep at night because you're all wrapped up about this, the God of money has your heart. That's a test of where you are. It's a good test. I I use it myself. Every time I get really upset about something like this, I say, well, why am I upset? Why would I be upset? This is testing who I am as a child of God. Secondly, it's a warning, I think. Or let me say it this way, a reminder. It's a reminder of that which is certain and that which is uncertain. You want to know what is uncertain? Everything in this life, including your money. You say, well, I got a lot of money saved, and I got this pension and all that going for me. Do you? What if that's all gone? What if that all goes away? And some people just can't sleep at night. They're thinking about that. Well, this is a reminder that if the Lord decided to take it all away, we still have the certainty of him. Right? The uncertainty of riches the certainty of Christ. What a thing. Who knows, you might be far happier if you had nothing. You came and lived with me. <laughs> I wouldn't be happier, but, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. A lot of our brothers and sisters around the world are in complete poverty. And yet when missionaries and different ones go to these countries and minister, they find some of these people are the most godly people they've ever run into. They're totally sold out for Jesus Christ and not distracted by money. So it's a warning, it's a reminder, and it's a test. Number, go to the second instruction. Put your trust in God, verse 17. said, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope in the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Put your trust in Him. He gives us all good things to be enjoyed. He does not change. He is certain Only God can be trusted. And notice that phrase, all good things to enjoy. 
I don't think God wants us to not enjoy the things he gives us. Let's enjoy them. But look, let's remember the source. He has given us all these things to enjoy. We're going to start the book of Ecclesiastes in a couple of weeks. And a lot of people think it's a very negative, pessimistic book. But as we go through that book, you're going to see something that's very applicable to what we're saying right now. That peppered throughout the book of Ecclesiastes are the gifts, even here on earth, that God gives us to enjoy at whatever financial level we're on. And those gifts are the simple things of life that everybody could enjoy, what, no matter what your finances are. We'll look at that together. But God gives us good things to enjoy them. Let, let me say that. Enjoy them. Enjoy this beautiful day. Enjoy this beautiful country. Enjoy the opportunities to go on a nice vacation. Enjoy the financial stuff God has let you have. But remember, they're uncertain. And only God is certain. And he'll give you what you need to live for him according to his will. Thirdly, wealth is not a sin. Verse 18, instruct those to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. It's not a sin to be wealthy. I don't think we should feel guilty if the Lord has blessed us that way. But what matters is not your net worth. It, what matters, according to this verse, is your generosity. So let me encourage all of us to take a good look at our generosity. Generosity towards the Lord's work. Generosity towards others who might have needs. Uh, who are not as well off as we are. How generous are you with what God gives you? Generosity. And then the fourth instruction. Proper use of wealth will bring great reward. He says in verse 19. Store enough for yourselves the treasures of a good foundation for the future. So that they may take hold of what that which is life indeed. Andrew Carnegie once said that millionaires never smile. I don't know if that's right or not. That's what he said. I want you to notice here, he says here in this verse of scripture, that by obeying the Lord in this area, two good things happen. Number one, number one right now, you have life indeed. You think you have life, living on your own stuff, being self-centered? You don't. If you want a life indeed, you need to follow God's principles in giving and, and generosity. And secondly, he says you have, you're laying up for yourself, storing up for yourself a treasure of a good foundation. The rewards go forward. You're going to be, the Lord is going to reward you for your, God, your, your godliness in the area of finances in the future. So we have life now and reward in the future. Verse 11, most famous verse in this chapter, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue things of godliness. Flee from this God of money and wealth. Pursue the things of God and godliness. Money is not wrong, but it is deceptive. And it's, it's habit-forming. It's irresistible once it grabs you by the heart. And too many Christians are caught in his web. Flee it and pursue that which is godly and righteous. I don't know if this is a true story or not, but I read once that Alexander the Great, on his, when he was dying, told those that were going to be taking his body through the masses of the people. As he was laid out there, he said, I want you to have my hands open so everybody can see that a man who conquered the world a man who had everything this life could give left this world with nothing. Keep that in mind as you think about the good gifts that God has given you, and especially himself and Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for this time in the word. We trust these very practical instructions and teaching from your word concerning money is uh, something we take to heart and make changes as you choose that we should make them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.